Well, good morning, church. If you would, please take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Revelation. Our text today will be Revelation chapter 22, verses 12 through 21. If you're unfamiliar with the Bible, this is an easy passage to locate, and it is, as it is the last book of the Bible, and this happens to be the last chapter. So we'll be looking at God's final and concluding words for us as recorded in sacred scripture. If you're using the Black Pew Bible in front of you, uh, you will find today's text on page 1042. Once again, this is Revelation chapter 22, beginning in verse 12. Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. Outside are the dogs and sorcerers and the sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. The spirit and the bride say come, and let the one who hears say come, and let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. He who testifies to these things say, says, surely I am coming soon, amen. Come Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Amen. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. For your word guides us, it instructs us, and at times, as, we, as we've just read, it warns us and convicts us. But as we walk through it, it also refreshes us. For in you, and your holy word, we place our trust and our hope as your word is sufficient. Father, you are seated on the throne, rightly to be praised, and through your son seated at your right hand, we have been made righteous to come and worship before that throne. Father, we now pray for Pastor Toby as he comes to deliver the message. Fill him with your spirit and speak through him. We pray that our minds would be open, would be free from any distractions that would hinder us from receiving the message that you would have us receive today. And may it both challenge and change us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Before we begin, I do want to remind you uh, of our prayer meeting this evening at 5 o'clock. I hope you will come. Um, at that time as we make it a habit each first Sunday to pray together for the ministries uh, that God has given us to pray for one another 
And uh, I hope that you will make that a priority as time goes on uh, to be here, especially as members of Gray Road. I want to begin, uh, actually, as we have the last few weeks, and that is by reading together our purpose, by reading together the four ways in which we seek to achieve that purpose. If you're a guest with us, uh, we're at the tail end of a series of four uh, sermons in which we have been thinking about our purpose as a church and how we are pursuing the accomplishment of that purpose. We actually don't think it's up to the church to come up with their purpose. Uh, we believe God has told us what our purpose is, and that is to glorify Him. And so uh, we have just sought to articulate the ways in which we seek to do that, the signposts along the path of glorifying God, if you will. So let's read these together. Uh, here we go. Gray Road Baptist Church exists to glorify God by exalting Jesus in passionate worship, equipping Christians for life and service, encouraging one another in meaningful fellowship, engaging the world with the gospel. It is that last phrase that we will focus on and that we will focus on as we think about uh, this phrase. Last night I was up uh, quite late, uh, not preparing this sermon. I was up quite late because uh, I'm one of those dads who has difficulty sleeping until all his children are under the roof. Uh, and uh, our older boys were at a competition with, their, uh, with music, with the, their school, and didn't get home until very late. And so... Uh, I happened to turn on network television, um, uh, mostly because I knew they were almost there, so I was just flipping on to see if I could find news or weather or something. But what I found was a man giving a financial seminar. And uh, he was talking about spending, and he was talking about saving, and he was uh, talking about uh, paying off debt, and he was talking about uh, saving for vacations, and he was talking about retirement, and all of these kinds of things. Um, and I'm literally, I'm so sleepy. I'm like, you know, the toothpicks are still in the eyelids, keeping my eyes awake. Uh, and so I, uh, I, I didn't quite catch what was going on until a few minutes in. He obviously seemed to be a Christian of some sort. Um, uh, he was talking about being a good steward, not necessarily something that comes to the mouth of every financial seminar presenter. Uh, he was also... Uh, talking about how we want to honor God with our money. And so these were things I thought, okay, well, uh, keep listening and listening. And then I notice there's something in front of him. And it appears to be something like this, except it's metal and it's, you know, it just is standing in front of him holding his notes. And I thought, is he doing this at a church? And they're broadcasting their financial seminar on television. Well, wow, that's really interesting. I never heard of that before. So a uh, little, uh, you know, website address comes up as far as what you can do. So I go to that website and I find out this is not a financial seminar. This is the Sunday morning preaching. I wonder how that strikes you. I wonder if I mean, maybe some people would be indifferent to the whole thing, right? Well, if that's what the Lord laid on his heart to say that morning, then, you know, leave him alone. I wonder if some of you might be intrigued. Like, well, that sounds very practical and wonderful. When are we going to have our Sunday morning financial seminar? Uh, it's quite possible you could get more people in this room if we had a Sunday morning financial seminar. Uh, don't fool yourself. 
anything on Sunday morning is difficult to get anybody to, unless it's a tea time, right, uh, at the golf course. But and I wonder if some of you might be rather concerned that given thousands of people in front of him, which he did, he looked it up on the internet, he's got thousands of people in front of him at multiple locations, plus everybody that's watching on television, and the message that he has delivered is that you should have a monthly budget. No, you should have a monthly budget, that's fine, that's good. I've helped people write those. Our deacons have, been actively, have actively helped other people to do that. But I wonder, is this the way to engage our world? Is this the way that, more particularly, that God has told us to engage the world? Why we shake our heads? No, no, we engage the world with the gospel. Don't you, didn't you just read that? It was up on the screen. We engage the world with the gospel. The financial seminar may have its place, but we engage the world with the gospel. And uh, we, I just, uh, just a little while ago, I, I gave or I gave online or however it is that I gave, and I'm helping fund missions to the end of the world, and that's how we're engaging the world with the gospel. Well, you're right in part, aren't you, that that is how we engage the world with the gospel. And we engage the world together, but I wonder, what do you understand to be your part in engaging the world apart from giving? Do you think there is a part for you apart from giving, apart from sitting here and by your presence physically supporting the preach, preaching of the gospel or, or something of that nature? It's interesting when we read the New Testament that we get to Acts 8 and the church is scattered. And the Bible tells us there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. Isn't it fascinating that Luke wrote that? Except the apostles. And then just three verses later he writes, Now those who were scattered, that is, everyone except the apostles went about preaching the word. And then as Paul writes to the, the church in Colossae, he writes, or sorry, well, Paul does write he, that you need to be wise to walk in wisdom toward outsiders and make your speech gracious so that you know, may, ha, may know how to answer others. And Peter writes in 1 Peter that we always need to be ready to give an answer for the hope that is within us, but to do so with hope and a, with a gentleness and a good conscience. So that by way of example and actually by way of instruction, it seems that taking the great commission, as we call it, of Jesus to go and make disciples of all nations is not limited to the disciples. That the disciple-making is not just limited to those disciples who were present. That the disciple-making actually isn't limited to the professionals who seek to make disciples for pastors or for elders or for missionaries or for over there or for actually a particular kind. I'm not really the, the kind of person who shares my faith. Everyone who was scattered in non-biblical language, the introverts and the extroverts were all scattered and they all went about preaching the gospel. 
probably look different from one person to the next. What is it that you would think your part is in engaging the world with the gospel? As we come to Revelation 22, what I want to do is to look at this and actually just look at one verse in such a way that I, I hope with, by God's help and God's grace to encourage us all in the task of engaging the world with the gospel. Because this one verse underlines the importance and necessity and urgency and substance of what it is that we do when we engage the world with the gospel. And that verse is Revelation chapter 22, verse 17. The Spirit and the bride say, Come. And let the one who hears say, Come. And let the one who is thirsty come. And let the one who desires take the water of life without price. And I want us to walk away understanding that the Spirit empowers the church to call the world to Jesus. The Spirit empowers the church to call the world to Jesus. Spirit, church, world, Jesus. The Spirit empowers the church to call the world to Jesus. All right? Now, to set this in a bit of context, when you get to uh, verse 8 of chapter 22, you've begun essentially the appendix of the book because uh, 22, 6, and 7 just about mirror chapter 1, verses 1 to 3. So if you want to just make that your homework for this afternoon, uh, do it. Go read chapter 1, verses 1 to 3, and then turn to chapter 22, verses 6 and 7, and hear how some of the phrases mirror each other. And I will tell you that until I read the whole book, some commentator could have told me that, but until I read the whole book in one setting, I didn't see that. And so there is great value in reading large portions of the Bible in one sitting. So I encourage you to do it. But 1, 1 to 3, and 22, 6, and 7, right there. But what we have then in verse 8 is, uh, well, I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. He's closing up, all right? And it's here that we find this call to come, and it's here that we find the Spirit empowering the church to call the world to come. So what I want us to do is to think of the what and the why and the who by thinking first of the what, the substance of the call to come, Then we will look at the assumptions of the call to come, that's the why, and then the voice of the call to come, that's the who. So the substance of the call is what I want us to think of first. It's just one word, it's the word come. Now, there is debate about who is the recipient of this word come. Uh, is, are, is this hearkening back to verse 12 when Jesus says, Behold, I am coming soon, and is is the, church, is the Spirit and the Bride and the one who hears and John picking that up and saying, Come. That's certainly what is happening in verse 20, isn't it? He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. And then the immediate call is, Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Or is it the world that is being called to come? Is this an outward glance? And I believe it is an outward glance. If you notice all the running ands, okay? Look at the ands. The Spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. And 
Let the one who is thirsty come. Okay? The running ands connect all of these things together. I think the best way to take that is that this is all one message with one audience, namely the world. And it's actually not an invitation like, oh, won't you please, please come to my wedding? It is a command. All of these are imperative verbs. All of them are commands. Come. 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 Take. All of them are imperatives. Calling the world to come. In other words, you've heard everything else. There's really only one thing left to say. Come. It, it, it actually mirrors what happens in the prophecy of Isaiah, because in Isaiah chapter 53, we have the description of God's suffering servant, right, who is crushed for our iniquity, who is bruised for us, that all we like sheep have gone astray, each of us has turned to his own way, but God has laid on him the iniquity of us all, and at the end, he will give him the spoils of the nations. And then in chapter 54, there's this great declaration of the coming peace, the eternal peace that the people of God will enjoy. And then chapter 55 opens. Come. Everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. In other words, in light of the suffering servant's work to redeem us from our sin, in light of the peace that God promises to all His people, come. It goes on to say, why is it that you're eating things that won't satisfy? Why are you drinking things? That, why are you drinking salt water when the fountain of life is right here? There's nothing else to say. The same is true here at the end of Revelation. Indeed, at the end of the whole of the Bible, there's only one thing to say. Come. Come. You have heard of the God who is our holy creator and judge. You have heard of our sinful rebellion against Him. You have heard of the guarantee of judgment under God's wrath because of our sin. You have heard of the provision of a Savior in Jesus Christ. You have heard of His sinless life and His sacrificial death in our place. You have heard of His conquering death in His resurrection. You have heard of forgiveness and of eternal life and of a renewed right relationship with God that only Jesus can give and what else? can he say then to you he has said come if you imagine at, at the height of materialism in our calendar Black Friday small child gets a preview of it all right preview of this and here's this toy, and here's that toy, and here's that toy, and here's, ev look, everything that you could ever desire is in this store, little one.
Now let's go home. No. God does not display all of the grandeur and greatness and glory of His redemption and just leave it up to us to figure out how to respond. He says, come. 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 It's all for anyone who comes. Anyone who comes to me, I will in no way turn out, Jesus says. Come. The call is not consider. It's not to just take this home and mull it over. Chew on it a bit. Just have your intellect tweaked and intrigued and just find some things fascinating. Isn't it fascinating what the Bible says? Isn't this fascinating? Isn't that fascinating? Oh, I read chapter 1, verses 1 to 3, and then I read chapter 22, verses 6 to 7, and it's just fascinating. The call is not to consider. The call is not actually to study. You know, don't actually come until you have every answer you could ever want. Look, dear friend, if that is you, you are waiting on every shoe to drop, every penny to drop, everything's going to be in just the right box with just the right everything that you are demanding that God gives you in an answer. I have to have this answer before I come. Believe me when I say it's not the answers that are the problem. It's not that your questions are so perplexing. It's not that you need to study more. The call is not to improve. Just do better. Can't you see what awaits? I mean, there's reward and there's judgment. You better improve if you want the reward. That is not the call of the Bible, dear friends, and yet that is the call that many think the Bible makes to mankind. Many will twist the call of the Bible to mean that what we need to do is just be a better version of humanity. To be a little less evil. Be a little more good. Be a better husband. Be a better worker. Be a better employee. Be a better friend. Be a better citizen. Dear friend, even in the places where the Bible does call us to be all those things, it's on the assumption that we cannot do it. Interestingly enough, the call is not actually to pray either. Be more religious. Attend services more often, people. That's what the Bible's really after is some uh, religious activity. Now, praying may be born, is born out of coming. Being part of a community of faith is born out of coming. But the call of the Bible is come. Here is Jesus. It is a whole-personed response to the gospel. 
To come means to leave where I'm at, leave the assumptions that I have, leave the beliefs that I have, leave the love for sin that I have, leave everything behind, turn away from it, and turn to the Lord Jesus Christ. Turn in a new direction and come, by come, it means come by faith, and more specifically, come to Jesus. Come to Jesus. That's where all of this takes us. I mean, if you listen to the second half of verse 17, it says, Let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. Now, this is something that actually God himself says he will do in 21.6. He says, And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. And this quenching of thirst comes through most clearly in the Gospel of John where it is addressed by Jesus himself. Jesus is at a well in the middle of a day with a woman who is an outcast, a woman of Samaria. Nothing, she's in the wrong, she she comes from the wrong place, she's been living the wrong life and here she is face-to-face with Jesus, and Jesus tells her, everyone who drinks of this water, speaking of the water in the well, will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And then in the text that Stephen read, I am the bread of life. He whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. And then again, John 7, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Jesus extends his own call to come in Matthew 11. Come to me, all who are uh, weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Dear Christian, listen, as we talk about engaging the world with the gospel, be very clear on this. Evangelism is not just a bare presentation of the facts of the gospel. The evangelism of Jesus looked to the crowds and said, Repent and believe. Come. The evangelism of the apostles said, Repent and believe. The call of Revelation twenty-two seventeen is, Come, repent and believe. Come, come, come. And so, dear friends, our call is not just, Well, here are the facts. Here are some religious facts for you to consider. It is here is what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. Come. May God give us discontent with only having religious conversations that are intellectually stimulating. It will seem an arrogant, closed-minded intrusion. But one of the words that our friends, our family, our children, our co-workers, our neighbors, yes, the world needs to hear is, Come! 
come. And I would tell you, dear friend, if you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ, all you know are the stories, the Bible stories of of, of Him dying on the cross and rising from the grave and you've sung the songs and maybe you've been in church a long time. But you've never placed your faith in this Jesus to save you. Come. I'll be right here afterwards. I'd love just to come, for you to come physically and let's talk and pray together to talk about who Jesus is and what he's done and, and, and what it means to follow him. Talk with anyone who's a member of this church. But the coming is not the coming from your pew to here. The coming is from where you are in life, where you've rooted yourself for so long and it is coming to Jesus with our hands empty to receive what He has done for us. Come. That's the call. That's the whole substance of the call. Secondly, think about the assumptions of the call. The why. Here's the thing. The more that I thought about this, (laughs) the more I thought about this word come, the more clear it became that when we as a congregation, when we as individuals, when we through sharing sermons, when we through whatever else, we, we, we seek to call people to come to faith, whatever it is, whatever form that may take, when, when we do that, there are certain assumptions that we are making just in saying the word come. I just want to give you four, and they're all rooted in the gospel. Assumption number one, there's something wrong. When we call the world to come, it is because the world is not okay. It is because humanity is not okay. We're not okay. Our friend, our co-worker, our neighbor, our child, our spouse isn't okay. Something is terribly, terribly wrong with where we are. Where we are is in rebellion against the God who created us. Where we are is in slavery to sin. Where we are is in darkness. Where we are is bound for punishment. All of this need, all of the rebellion, the slavery, the sin, the picture of sin here, and the wrongness in verse 17 is because there is thirst. There is something that must be done about the thirst. And we do know, because maybe we ourselves were there, the world does not accept this assumption. I'm not sure anybody likes when you come up and one of the assumptions that you have is there's something wrong with you. In fact, the world pats us on the back and assures us 
that everything's okay and affirms who I am, where I am. The world tells me, hey, you stay there. You don't let anybody move you. You do what you do. You don't change anything. Nothing's wrong. And the gospel pleads with us saying there is something desperately wrong. Everything must change. You must leave where you are and you must come. Don't stay where you are. Come. So that's the first assumption. We're assuming that something is wrong. When we call anyone to come to Jesus in faith, we are assuming wrongness. We're assuming the same wrongness that was true of us before God, by His grace, brought us to Jesus. Assumption number two, there's nothing you can do. There's nothing you can do. The world assures us that if there's anything that we do want to change about our lives, we can do it, right? From weight loss to educational goals to starting that business to the career boost, whatever it is, you can do it. But when we call the world to come, it's under the gospel assumption that humanity is so bad that we couldn't change even if we wanted to and we wouldn't change even if we could. That's how bad off humanity is. Romans 8 says, The mind set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. We cannot make ourselves new. We cannot atone for our own sin. We cannot find our way to God. We cannot make our way to heaven. We must come somewhere else for that to happen. And we can't even do that without the Spirit's work. I mean, that's how bad off it is. That's how bad off we really are. That's like, look, uh, I, I, it's like, I mean, so many pastors have said this. It's just walk, walk into Forest Lawn Seminary and tell it, seminary, cemetery, and it's not actually full of dead people at the seminary. <laughs> I've been there. Now, there are pictures of dead men hanging on the wall, but... Uh, it, it may just depend on which seminary you're in. Anyway, so you go into Forest Lawn Cemetery and you just look at the grave and you just say, get up. Come. Come. And no matter how much you plead and no matter how much you cry and no matter how much you yell and no matter how much you stomp, that person cannot get up. So even as we're calling to come, when we say there's nothing you, you can do, we're not saying that your way of doing things is messed up, come do my way of doing things. We're saying you can't do anything, you can't even come, but you have to come. And only when the Spirit of God works, they do come. Only when the Spirit of God worked, you came. It's not because you figured it out. It's because God, by His Spirit, <laughs> enabled us to come, brought us to Himself. The wind of the Spirit blew over the grave of my soul so that I got up and came. Assumption three, so assumption one there's something wrong. Assumption two, there's nothing you can do. Assumption three, there's someone who can. 
there's someone who can. In calling people to come, we believe that Jesus can and will do what he has promised. He will quench the soul's thirst. He died thirsty on the cross so that our souls would be satisfied in him forever. Our thirst for forgiveness is quenched. Our thirst to be right with God is quenched. Our thirst to know why we exist is quenched by Jesus. And not only there's someone who can, there's only one who can. That's why Peter in Acts 4 says that salvation, there's salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. When I call my friend to come, I'm assuming there's something wrong. I'm assuming there's nothing they can do. I'm assuming there's someone who can, because that's where I'm wanting them to come, is to come to the same place that I came. And the last assumption is that eternity is at stake. That it is necessary to come. Listen to this again, verses 12 to 15 of Revelation 22. Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. Outside are the dogs and sorcerers and the sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. This is not the only place, dear friends, in the book of Revelation or in the Bible that such a separation is pictured. But the reality of separation in the end permeates the Bible. That when we call people to Jesus, there is an assumed importance, there is an assumed urgency to the call because the response to that call will echo down through eternity, either in the promise of judgment or the promise of reward. The promise of judgment would be seen, if you just want to jot this down, in Revelation 20, verses 11 to 15, death and Hades are thrown into uh, the lake of fire. And then in verse 14, this is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Fire whose smoke, by the way, goes up forever and ever. And then in the next chapter in 21, verse 8, But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion shall be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. And then verse 27 of 21, But nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. If you were to go back and you just read the book of Revelation beginning to end, what you would find is that the judgment is real, the judgment is terrifying, the judgment is painful, and the judgment is eternal. And this judgment awaits all those whose names are not written in the Lamb's book of life, and the evidence that those names are not written in the Lamb's book of life is that they will not come to Jesus. And then there's the promise of reward. Chapter 21, beginning in verse 3. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself 
will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Then in chapter 22, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed. Can you imagine being in that place? It is beyond comprehension. But the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him. They will see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. As long as the smoke arises from the lake of fire, so long shall God's people reign with Him. And the key, again, is the names of those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. And the evidence is that they have come to Jesus. Because just as the judgment is real and terrifying and painful and eternal, the reward is real and glorious and joy-giving and eternal. These are the assumptions we make when we sit down at coffee with our unbelieving friend and we want to share the gospel. There is something wrong. Come. There is nothing you can do. Come. There is someone who can. Come to Him. Because eternity is at stake. So come. Parents, as you share the gospel with your children, it cannot be so that they don't embarrass you as they grow up. You must keep the gospel assumptions in the drive to teach and share and exemplify the gospel to your children. Otherwise, you are seeking to serve yourself and not God. Gray Road, if we are not convinced of these truths, we will quickly lose our motivation to engage the world with the gospel. Very quickly. Do do you want your zeal for evangelism to increase? Think about that. Do you want your zeal for evangelism to increase? Study the gospel. Remember the reality of sin, the reality of judgment, the reality of Jesus' atonement, the reality of the exclusivity of Jesus. And pray and ask the Lord to increase your zeal. Take this book, the book of Revelation alone, and just read it from beginning to end. Do it in one sitting. You can do it if you do it out loud and you're, I don't know how fast a reader I am, but it took me about an hour or so to read it out loud. 
Just read it out loud. And whether you comprehend all the imagery or not, you should, but with God's help, walk away with the terrors that face those who do not believe and the joy that faces those who do. And pray that God will give you gospel opportunities. Pray that He will give you the wisdom to see them. Pray that He will give you the courage to take them. We will literally only be preaching to the choir if there is only one or a handful or a dozen of us who are interested in engaging the world with the gospel. Pray, believing that God will help you. Believe Him. Do not put such a label on yourself that the Spirit of God cannot rip it off. Finally, the voice of the call. Who is it that is doing this call? First, it is the Spirit of God. The Spirit and the bride say, come. First, the Spirit says, come. The Holy Spirit, not a force, but a person, the third person in the Trinity. The Holy Spirit is God, actively reaching into His world to do His work. We see that part here through speaking, calling the world to come. Really, it's the Spirit's voice that's driving everything here. Any other voice that calls the world to come to Jesus must be empowered by the Spirit of God who calls, come. Even in general, as you step out in faith and you have lunch with that friend or you have coffee with that friend or you say a word to that stranger or you say, better than I deserve when somebody asks you how you're doing and they ask you what in the world that means and you're about to tell them it's because you deserve wrath but you have received grace or whatever it is. However it is that you will go about in, in, uh, engaging other people with the gospel, when you take that step out in faith to do it, it is the Spirit who is empowering you to do it. So there's a general sense in which the Spirit empowers us to call. But there is a specificness to the Spirit as well. So that when your friend says, when that stranger says, you know what? You're right. I need to repent of my sins and believe in Jesus. Will you pray with me? What, what, do, I, what do I do now? I believe you. What do, what do I do now? That when that happens, dear friend, it is not because you were so clever in your presentation. It is not because you said the right words at the right moment. It is because when your mouth said the word come, or whatever word it is that you're using, the Spirit of God in a convincing and real and irresistible way said, Come! You are mine! The blood of Jesus has been shed for you! Boy, there's nothing more exciting than that, dear friends. But if we're not generally stepping out in faith, being empowered by the Spirit, we will never experience the specific empowering at which in that moment God, by His grace, calls that person to Himself. But it's all the Spirit. Any good that comes of it. If it just changes their mind about being open to the possibility of the existence of God, it's by the Spirit. 
But we don't want to just settle for that. We want to see people not convinced that there is a God. We want to see people reconciled to God through Jesus Christ. Secondly, the bride says come. This bride is the church as a whole. Together, we see it pictured in the Old Testament. We see it pictured in the Gospel of John. We see uh, the analogy drawn to husbands and wives from Jesus and the church in the book of Ephesians. And then in Revelation 19, we won't turn back there. I would encourage you to do so. All those who've been saved by Jesus, forgiven and counted righteous through his work on the cross, all those who are truly Christians, gather to celebrate the completion, the consummation of that salvation at what is called the marriage supper of the Lamb. And collectively, they are called Jesus' bride. And then in chapter 21... Verse 2, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride for her husband. And then verse 9, one of the seven angels who had seven bowls full of the seven last plagues spoke to me saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he goes on to see this perfected, beautiful city of God, which is the bride of the Lamb. And the bride will dwell with the bridegroom in perfect joy and perfect peace, removed from the presence and power of sin forever. And the bride, collectively, says, Come. When we gather every Sunday... When we, when we sang, there is an everlasting kindness you lavished on us. When the radiance of heaven came to rescue the lost. We are proclaiming together as this bit of the bride. Come. Come, people of the risen King. Come. Hear the call of the kingdom to be children of light. Come. That's what we're doing. We're singing to God in praise. We're singing to one another in encouragement. We're singing to anyone who doesn't believe in evangelism. All in this one act of corporate praise. Dear friend, if there is any great reason to not sneak in after the music to just hear the sermon, that's it. Not only are we commanded to praise, but all of the things that happen in our praise are awe-inspiring. The bride says, come. Third, the one who hears says, come. If the bride is the collection of believers, the one who hears is more individual. Let the one who hears... This isn't uh, the auditory reception of sound waves through the physiology of our ears. This is the ear of the soul perking up and receiving spiritual truth. Jesus often concluded his parables this way, didn't he? He who has an ear, let him hear. And then through the letters to the seven churches in Revelation 2 to 3, the cadence was, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. It says it again in chapter 13, verse 9. So the one who hears is one who not just has heard the words of God over and over and over again, it's the one who actually receives the words of God, recognizes them as truth, as authoritative, as God's word. He hears the Spirit. So this one in verse 17 hears the Spirit and the bride say, Come. In a gathering like this, some of us will hear the words of Toby physiologically. And some of us will hear my voice 
but what will echo through is the voice of God. And that is a humbling and fear and trembling, inciting reality for anyone who would dare to stand in a pulpit at any time. But it also ought to remind us that we are not listening. We're not listening for me today. We're listening for God. The one who hears say, come. He's actually commanded. That word say is a command. Let the one who hears say, come. So he has heard the Spirit and the bride say, come. And by God's grace, he has come. And now his voice joins the chorus of voices to say, yes, just like that wasn't so much a chorus as a sprinkling, but we'll get there. And fourth, it seems that even John takes up the words, right? Because he's not assigning these last words to anyone else. He says, let the one who is thirsty come. He's calling himself. He's calling out. Let the one who is thirsty come. And let the one who desires take the water of life without, pri- without price. So the voice of the bride... The voice of the one who hears, the voice of John, all calling out with the voice of the Spirit. Yes. We identify these four voices, but truly it is only one. You know that place at the end, okay, at the end of Handel's uh, uh, Hallelujah Chorus, okay? The Hallelujah Chorus, everybody's saying Hallelujah, Hallelujah, and there's, uh, you know, forever and ever over here, and there's King of Kings over here, and there's Hallelujah, Hallelujah, and then they start, everybody at the very end starts singing Hallelujah, Hallelujah, but the orchestra is still going crazy underneath, right? So it's going crazy, and then it comes to this dead stop, and at that stop, if it's done right, you can hear a pin drop in the room. And then... In, 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 in one voice together, in, in sync with one another, in precise rhythm, the orchestra plays and the choir sings, Hallelujah. And what is awe-inspiring is that all these voices are all over the place through the whole thing, and it all comes together at the end. And in the book of Revelation, you have these opening of seals and you've got the pouring out of bowls and you've got the blasting of trumpets and you've got the clanging of swords and making war. You've got the sounds of hell's torment filling the air. And the Spirit waves His baton, bringing everything to a fever pitch. And He calls the chorus to action to say what He is saying. And He calls and empowers them all to do it and the voice of the bride and the voice of each Christian and the voice of John join the voice of the Spirit who is singing himself to collapse into one chord, one voice, one word. Yes. That is the beauty of Revelation 22, 17. That is the beauty of the church engaging the world with the gospel. If we are going to be in line, in sync, in unison with the Spirit, this must be our message to the world. As a people when we are collected and as individuals when we are scattered, that with one voice, 
one message, one gospel summed up in one word. Gray Road Baptist Church says, that is what it means to engage the world with the gospel. Let's pray. Father, we bow before you, thankful for all the voices in our life that you give.